1: not a diving podcast with Scuba. Cool, Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. Okay, apologies for the lack of a podcast last week or lack of a main podcast anyway. I was 46 odd weeks in a row without dropping the ball, but unfortunately the ball was dropped last week. It wasn't due to the lack of... An actual podcast being recorded. I've been kicking around various ideas for developing the kind of way I put this together and the presentation. So, I mean, one of the things I've wanted to do for ages is to do video, and just a way of doing that. Well, there's kind of an infinite number of ways of doing it, and you just have to figure out what the best one's going to be. Because the way I've been putting these together so far is quite labour intensive and I don't think it really needs to be. But it's due to a sort of, I don't know, perfectionist kind of streak, which I could probably put to one side for this. But anyway, going forward, there's going to be video at some stage. I think maybe in January we'll move to some kind of video thing without all the laborious editing and stuff, which happens currently, which just makes it all a little bit too labour intensive and is subject to technical problems. I mean, obviously doing video is also subject to technical problems and using various systems. Nothing is infallible. But anyway, that's what happened this week. So it was there and ready to record it. As you will notice... Because in my conversation with our guest this week, none other than Seth Troxler, we talk about the Wales-USA game has happened the night before, so that's when it was recorded. Anyway, so yeah, that's that. So yeah, Seth Troxler on the show this week. It's great to have him. The winner of the RA Top 100 DJ poll a few years back, genuinely big deal in the world of house music. And a really arresting kind of character. Like, you've definitely got an opinion on him, I'm sure, if you know who he is. And as he says in the conversation, he can be a little bit polarizing. But I mean, to me, he's always just been someone who is quite unique in his personality. So I wanted to have him on for ages. And it's great that it's finally happened. So yeah. It's a good one this week. I really enjoyed the conversation and um, I think you're going to enjoy it too. You can support the show if you're not doing so already via Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's bonus podcasts that go up and various other things. There's a tier which gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. If you were a patron, you would have had a podcast last week, just not the main podcast. So you would not have been starved of content as you were, unfortunately, under your current arrangements. But if you don't want to do that, or if you can't afford it, that's also absolutely fine. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit the five-star button. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist, which contains all the episodes and lots of the music that we talk about on it. It's a good way of following the show. And yeah, join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to join the conversation if you've got anything to say to me. That's the best way to do it. Don't do Twitter. I mean, you could do Twitter. At Scuba Official is Twitter. Also on Instagram, at Scuba Official. But yeah, Discord is the best place. So hit me up in there if you want to chat about the show or if you want to say anything to me that's nice, preferably nice things that would be better than otherwise. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. Without further delay, here is Seth Troxler. Seth Troxler, welcome to the show. How
0: you doing? Hello, scuba. How are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, man. Do you do the show under your real name or under the scuba? I, <laughs> I was,
1: was going to say, yeah, call me call me Paul, please. <laughs> Great that we're doing this. Finally, been talking about it for a little while. I just wanted to kick off with something kind of topical. Are you watching the World
0: Cup? Uh, I, I'm not a football fan. I'm American. Uh, <laughs> right. I
1: mean, the uh, USA did play last night. They, uh, yeah, we, we won, avoided. right? No, no, it was a draw. There was a late equalizer from uh, Wales. Yeah, so, I'm
0: not. I'm not really a fo- I like ice hockey.
1: Right. Okay, that makes sense, right? Because you're from that part of the world where hockey's big. I'm right? from
0: Detroit. Yeah, yeah. We had like a dynasty and the whole thing. I always make a kind of funny joke. I don't know if your listeners will kill me for this, but uh, in America, football's a girls' sport. And women's football in Amer- it does does dominate the World Cup every every year. So <laughs> we're really the That's women fine. are really good. That's fine. But- <laughs>
1: yeah. We're not we're not judgmental about about women's <laughs> women's football.
0: No, but women's football in America is a big thing, you know. And like for, no, it's for, huge. I mean- for boys growing up, it's not really. It's not really a thing.
1: It's got significantly bigger, actually, women's football in in the UK as well. I mean, like the English women's team won the European Championships this summer, so it's kind of kind of a big thing. But there was there was another reason why I was asking about the World Cup, actually, because I mean, obviously, it's in Qatar, and there's been all sorts of chat about you know the ethics of holding such an event in a place which has you know, for example yeah homosexuality as an illegal thing yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and i wanted to i wanted to ask you like i mean we've talked on the show before about stuff like you know dj's boycotting certain places and we had a, i mean i talked about the israel palestine situation with your time avni at length and people's various kind of attitudes to playing there and i wondered i mean how do you feel generally about going to do work in places where you don't agree with the kind of regime
0: well, I mean, it's kind of a funny one, uh, again, going back to being American, because America is kind of like the low-key number one human rights violator of the world. Um, if you if you really think about it, I mean, there was just another uh, ra- uh, racist and um, homophobic attack in America just a couple of days ago in Colorado Springs. Yeah, mass shooting. I mean, it? we yeah. have um, a, one of our parties is completely, uh, how do you, fanatical and, um, very right-wing, I said very equal to many other right-wing uh, kind of uh, regimes around the world um, in terms of homosexuality, in terms of race, in terms of everything. So when it comes to boycotting countries over different regimes, I was just in Israel the other day, and, you know, Israeli people, um, I, I, I find, are generally uh, understand the plight of the Palestinians. A lot of the people who I think uh, cause a lot of the problems are American Zionist in that country Um, in terms of, you know, I was actually the day after I played in Tel Aviv, I went and played in Dubai and um, you know, the people on the ground, I don't think have a lot to do with the politics. I mean, in the politics of my country, if you look at the wars and the amount of people America has killed in the past 50 years, I think it's more than all the global wars in, ever you know so um it's it's a hard one you know i i, I mean I, I i fit very align myself very left politically and uh, i'm very open you know and, and against so many human rights abuses but i feel like a way that we can change um some of these places is by awakening and opening people's eyes to different ways of viewing and different cultural approaches um you know i mean even it's kind of funny like um I, I, I've been actually banned from Singapore for my political beliefs and uh, and many oh, things. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been banned for wow. about Wow, did, how did 10. that happen? Well, I don't know how that happened, really. I just was playing often, and one day I went to my agent, and I was like, why aren't we going to Singapore anymore? And he's like, oh, you've been banned because of your beliefs, um, which I think were wow. like more pro-drug and less, just pro-open lifestyle. So, I mean, it's kind of nice to be an enemy of at least one state. Um You know, I always (laughs) I always say with with my son, you know, it's either an astronaut or an enemy of state or both at the same time would be an ideal um, situation for him. But um, yeah, what you want to be when you grow up? You mean (laughs) what I would would like him to be? Yeah, if you could be an astronaut and an enemy of state, I think in thirty years you'll probably need both of them. So um, (laughs) that's kind (laughs) of like where I sit on the thing. But currently, you know, especially if you're looking at you know, like let's say um, Riyadh or going, you know, to Saudi and stuff like Jeff Mills is going, Ricardo's going quite frequently, a lot of people. So, I mean, I think we're in this new place where, well, you know, what does an artist's political stance stand for, you know, and how can you really change things, but instead of being at, by being on the ground there and just trying to change opinions, you know, I think right now the biggest human rights abusers in the world is Iran. What's going on there is is really, really incredibly wrong. I mean, it's incredible that Qatar, I mean, is at least opening up and saying that homosexuals are safe currently um, at the World Cup, even though it may not be for long, for these two, what what one month, just for the regime to change its mind, to open up. It is it is somewhat of a step forward. I mean, I sound kind of like the fucking FIFA chief actually right now who's that, – <laughs> that, that was total bullshit, but, you know – I mean, I don't believe in the fact that, like, all those people died building that stadium and all that. I think that's all fucked up and pretty pretty much bullshit. But generally, I mean, I think as an American, there's not much I can say.
1: I mean, I was just going to say that, like, it's... I mean, yes, they've opened the way to... Well, they've kind of paid lip service to uh, saying that homosexuality is okay for the period of the tournament. But then at the game, at the, the USA-Wales game last night, they were not letting people into the stadium who had rainbow hats on. So it's very much kind of giving with one hand and taking with the other kind of approach that they seem to be taking. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Ricardo, actually, because I mean, to my knowledge, he doesn't play in America for political reasons. Is, oh, he's, that, he plays in America right?
0: like every other month now. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, does he? Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. So
0: he's, he's, he's changing his stance on that. But he is very anti-Israel, you know, in, in terms of going to Palestine, right. in terms of his association and um, kind of alignment with Palestine. And I, and I am actually, in the terms of the Palestinian conflict, very much pro-Palestine. I mean, my wife is Jewish. I'm part Jewish. But I still don't think that any person or any um, kind of political party is without um, uh, what's the word I want to use uh, you can't you should be able to disagree with you know and, and agree with a country but disagree with the with the people in power very much how I felt with America under the Bush and under the Trump years you know I love my country but uh, I hated those uh, I hate the Republican Party so you know it's it's a it's a tough one to really I mean I remember at one point I I had said you know hey I don't want to play at Coachella anymore and then. I was like, you know, hey, cuz what they do cuz they donate all this money to anti um anti gay groups, all these different things and um and then I saw all these people who were really, you know, politically like, you know, like, you know, open on on social media and stuff all still playing there. And then at the end of the day I just <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, you know, no one notices and then you're just the person, you know, losing out. So I mean, it's I don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean like the the opportunity to make a real meaningful statement does not come along often, does it really? And like I think when you're making a kind of arbitrary decision to boycott a country based on that it's I don't know, it's it's difficult to make that stick, you know, and make it into something which does actually mean
0: something. Yeah, and, the, and do always... people really care? That's the thing. Right. I mean it, it, where we where we are now, it's not where we are 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's like a bigger question, does protest really work anymore you know i think that's the bigger conversation you know that's that's which is a sad part of society that i think that we live in it's like does protest or any meaningful resistance actually change the dial you know does it move the needle at all and that's kind of a scary point to be in in this kind of neoliberal you know semi-fascist world it's like what can we actually do to combat or to um What's the word? I'm sorry. I've been up since like six o'clock in the morning <laughs> with my son. Um, yeah, to uh, yeah to move to make things make, make make a change in the world we're living in.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I absolutely hear that, I and mean, it's it's interesting that you kind of compare it to like 40, 50 years ago because I mean, obviously there, I mean there has been progress since the civil rights movement of the 60s and um i don't know i mean i feel like that's like the the nature of that progress though is sometimes kind of questioned in a way which i'm not sure i completely agree with so i mean how did you feel about like you know the black lives matter protests of like the whole thing that happened in 2020 how did you feel about that
0: well i mean i was there i was in the protest in la and i was i mean obviously being an african-american uh and the Meaning behind Black Lives Matter, you know, being you know they were killing us, and it was about police brutality. I think in some ways it was hijacked into something else, and then the organization that became Black Lives Matters, um, I think, diluted even more the actual content of what we were trying to achieve. I mean, it's so kind of funny. Typically in the African American struggle. That even when it happened, you know, it was during a pandemic, and nothing really changed. You know, I think people were much more focused on bigger issues at that time, being the world shut down and you know millions of people dying. And you know, it's kind of funny, like even we—I was—I don't know if making a joke is the right word to say, but when uh, you know the kind of women and gay movement happened, and we had all this thing about inclusion riders and all this stuff. But then Black Lives Matter happened, and I was like, "Do Black DJs matter too?" I was like, "Can we can we get on? Can we add some more <laughs> inclusivity to to festivals when it comes in terms of race?" You know, and that was kind of just kind of washed over and missed, you know. But I think in in the larger vision of what Black Lives Matter stood for and what that term still stands for, in my eyes, is incredibly important. You know. 'Cause we all, we were dying on camera repeatedly with zero repercussion. And I think that is incredibly wrong. Uh, you know, and that's that's the thing that's kind of like in terms of, you know, let's say in Vietnam protests, you know, when you saw that girl being napalmed, you know, there was mass public outrage. But I think the desensitivity with violence today and with all the things that we see from school shootings, from all these really graphic images that used to move society so distinctively i think that's been kind of lost and that's that's the really saddening part of the loss of humanity that we're kind of facing around the world you know that people have become so in like i don't know i don't even know what how to describe it but so so caught up in their lives so desensitized so so little attention to the, the real things that are happening you know we have the slow burn that is climate change that's you know very scary for I think a lot of the youth and for parents today to know that their kids will face some of the catastrophic mm. um, pictures being painted in the future and people are just like yeah what I do? mean that's that's the that's, <laughs> you know? that's-
1: that's an absolutely like classic example of it, isn't it? Because I mean, I think I think you're right that the people are sort of desensitized to like that sort of to imagery, anything. but there is still <laughs> well, I think there's there's still room for like individual cases to catch your imagination. I mean, George Floyd is an example
0: of that, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely.
1: But climate change is this weird, nebulous thing <laughs> which is seemingly obviously happening, but also not that predictable. Like you know, there was a. Um, uh, like a CIA report, I believe, in the early 90s, which predicted Florida to be underwater by 2005, which obviously did, didn't happen. But that's not to say that the thing isn't happening, right? Yeah. So it's it's a very difficult thing for people to process in their minds, given that what is required to actually do something about it is quite fundamental to the way people live their lives.
0: It's quite fundamental. It's quite now. But the repercussions won't be for another 100 years. You know, I was, right. just, I was even just in Dubai, right? and yeah it was yeah it's 40 degrees out or whatever 35 degrees in the in the winter and you know i was walking around this big mall giant mall air conditioned mall right and i was like i was like so this is what it'll be like in 100 years everywhere i'm like you know i <laughs> was kind of like very joking it's like uh, you know the rich will have be living in a desert surrounded by grass and trees that they consume all the water from. (laughs) And, and, you know, the poor are left, you know, struggling in, in Sudan and having to deal with all the real problems. You know, it's, it's very funny. I mean, even when I had another child or my first child, uh, part of the kind of decision behind it was I was thinking, and I was like, even, I mean, I'm very much into science fiction and, and, you know, and, kind of utopias and dystopias as well as the idea of total totalitarian and fascism. <laughs> just the the possi- not, I'm not a fascist itself, but I study it too because you gotta know your enemy, right? Um so but looking at it, I was like I was kinda like you know, riding the escalator of this mall, watching people ice skate and stuff. And I was like in having the child and I was like, well at least we have at least one to two more generations, one more generation where life will be okay. And even in the saddest predictions of humanity, it's still quite beautiful. I mean, I was even watching the newest Matrix that was horrible, but there were some great science fiction points of, of a way of humanity living that still has a beautiful story. I mean, if you look at World War Two. Even within the darkest times of our recent history, there were still beautiful stories being told and beautiful moments to be human, you know, in the face of complete. At that point, you know, if you look at, you know, America dropping the nuclear bomb on Japan, still in Japan, people found beautiful stories and love was made and it was still a beautiful time to be alive, you know? I think humanity in many ways is like a hero story. We always fuck it up to the very end and then come out and round something up. So, I mean, in in all this kind of like total, like I think, um, what's what's the word, like, um, yeah, us looking at only the worst possible scenario that every world would be flooded. I think we'll find solutions, and even within the flooding, we'll find ways to be human. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is a tendency amongst humans to look to a kind of doomsday scenario right and this is like that as, that's a story that's as old as humanity itself right the exactly end nine, right but but equally i mean adversity gets the best out of people in a lot of cases
0: right yeah you know, it, it provokes heroism that's what i'm saying it's the hero story yeah we have exactly. to have exactly. that climatity to then like come up with the solutions we have to push ourselves to the very worst to realize that for our humanity to kind of kick back in and realize that we have to save ourselves you know it's a it 's a very funny human condition i'm loving this podcast by the way these are real these are real questions <laughs> <laughs> well just just to go I
1: wanted to go back to Flat Lives Matter actually. What I took from what you said about that is that you didn't think it had much. Of an effect like in terms of like sort of the efficacy of the project I think
0: the impact the impact the impact compared to the actual problem I think wasn't wasn't as strong as it could have or should have been and I think as well right. it was played down so much by the politically right and uh, you know like like really not played down but really minimized um, politically by so many people in the country that it was happening. That it it during a time where we had a much bigger, not much bigger, but we had another situation happening. It was you know the quantifiable after fa- after effects or changes I think are very minimal compared to what the mu- movement and the momentum that the movement started with is what what I really right. really am saying. And still, there's very few quantifiable um, you know effects or not effects, but uh, you know, things that came out of it, came out of the whole, the whole thing in terms of music. I mean, look at electronic music, for example, we're in a culture or mm-hmm. a scene where it was created mostly by African-Americans and Hispanics, which is an undeniable fact. Techno culture bigger than ever has almost zero African-Americans. <laughs> you know, like if you look at a percentage under 5% contributing to it, um, music, musically, it's, completely has nothing to do with what the original uh, the original intention was, you know? It's like going from Miles Davis to Kenny G um, and, and, you know, and no one saying Miles Davis, <laughs> and then saying Miles Davis never existed is are we're, we're, to- we're, we're kind of I mean, de- dealing was, with okay, currently. Okay, hang on a
1: second. <laughs> I want okay, to push back on that slightly because I think, I mean, you know, what you say about the origin of the music is absolutely correct, obviously, but I don't think it's quite true to say that there's been an erasure of those artists is it i, I, I mean i I'm think not, it's like I don't most say people who complete are involved.
0: erasure, but i mean i okay. think a lot of people don't even acknowledge that techno music was black music or house music to be the same at least young people okay. who are involved in the culture that's just and that's fine i'm like uh, but i'm just saying you know in terms of of really embracing black culture in electronic music that was founded founded by black culture I, th- I think there's a lot of work to still be done
1: yeah, I think that's that's definitely fair, and I think I th- well, I think the picture is slightly different in America than it is in Europe, and again, that's not to say or that's not to kind of minimize the the contribution and the kind of a, you know the originators.
0: I mean, is it because like in, in Europe, it's kind of like there's like this originator fetish fetishizing, like at least most of the
1: well, there is now, yeah. I mean, yeah,
0: most of the like the the kind of, let's say black artists that are on large festival headlines are or like originators yeah. or fet- it's like Jeff Mills, you know, st- like all these kind of, let
1: me, let me clarify what I meant by that a little bit. Like what, I mean, I, I guess what I was getting at was in the kind of early nineties periods where um, like the kind of first wave Detroit guys had come over and there'd been the influence of that music on European scenes, but there were very distinct European scenes, which, which sprung up like really quickly Cause I'm thinking of like Frankfurt and Berlin and London and yeah. Manchester,
0: Belgium, all this, all these different scenes that had their own culture that spawned from that music. And that's, that's totally fair. And yep. those cultures became the mass culture that became electronic dance culture. However, at the same time, a lot of those cultures continued to rip off the music that was happening from those places and then re-put their stamp and name on it. And that's kind of like, just how it happened. It's like, The colonialization of music, which has happened in all musics from rock and roll all the way to electronic music. It's like every music that is created by, let's say, a minority group has been colonialized. And that's just a fact of of culture and life, you know.
1: Like, so you I mean okay the term ripping off is is pretty strong I mean I I'm thinking about like the British rock bands and and their appropriation of blues which was pretty shocking right like if you listen to it like a Led Zeppelin record or whatever
0: at least they all acknowledged where the music was coming from <laughs> you know? sure like which is sure. which is fine you know they still had a deep respect For the origins of that music, and like you look at the Rolling Stones and all these people, they really put a lot of those artists back on, and and you know really uh, championed them, you know when they had the chances to. you know. However, in terms of say of house music, uh, so many people have been ripped off, you know what I'm saying. And a lot of those, gonna say founders of electronic music are still around. If it's even look at Paul Johnson for example, right? Paul Johnson Mm -hmm. would still be alive today had he not had to work during the pandemic to survive because he never got gigs. And people reference Paul Johnson a trillion times, reference his music, use his music as a starting point, even steal loops from his songs to make songs, but then, you know, put it out under a different name or don't. no one wants to book those people. Same with DJ Dion. You know, DJ Dion, everyone loves Dance Mania records, but no one wants to book DJ Dion, you know? And it's like, but, you know, you put another artist in who does a replica of DJ Dion or something else like this. And they're the biggest artist. So some of the biggest artists on the planet, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a so hard, what do you,
1: what do you it, put that down to? Because I think, I think what you're saying is broadly correct. And I, I generally uh, agree with it, but why have the kind of artists who have essentially jumped on the, cultural bandwagon over the course of 20 or 30 years now like why has that happened do you think is it something to do with the audience is it some kind of ingrained kind of like bias within the kind of industry like what do you think it what do you
0: think i don't know about jumping on the cultural bandwagon because again if you look at american dance music culture it's far smaller than what it bloomed into this multi-billion dollar Situation around the world.
1: Okay, so that was maybe yeah, that was maybe that's the wrong term. jumping on the musical bandwagon then. Let's yeah, see, see.
0: I don't, I don't really know even the answers to the situation. I'm just calling it how I see it, and how many other people from Detroit and Chicago, and a lot of all of these other let's say founders or other people who've been in this culture for many years who are you know struggling to stay alive, but you know having millions of articles written about how they're you know the goats. <laughs> And they like, you know, can't get a gig, you know, and it's I, I, I don't know why that happens. And it's, you know, I think it's a thing with a lot of um, what are they what do you guys call it or what is it called now today? Uh, not historical acts, but like uh, whatever, you know, I mean, it's also like, you know, kids don't want to see some guy who's 50 playing records. You know, I, I totally get that. Well, that's understandable. <laughs> yeah, that's totally understandable. I mean, our kids barely want to see us playing records. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. But like, yeah, no. It's it's just it's just things that are happening in in society. You know, it's funny when you know, for example, you know, let's say an article about, or for example, I, I kind of laughed at this when it happened about Arc Music Festival, the sh- festival in Chicago. Uh, that happened very recently. Um, uh, it, it's very, it's it's just, it's so funny. So it's a, a festival about Chicago artists. It, it features all the, all the Chicago artists. Closed the festival, all this thing. But then when it went to let's say RA writing about the article, they only wrote about white European artists. You know, it didn't talk about Derek Carter or Honey DeJean playing the best set of the festival and these type of things. You know, so like instead of championing. You know the in the home of that of that musical sound and all the great artists that are playing there. Even if you look at Detroit Movement Festival, where I've been playing forever. All the black artists from Detroit are put on the smallest stage, you know, like, like the Detroit stage, and then all these European artists are put as the main acts everywhere else. And I don't know what you call that. You know, I I know. It's a situation where I've been one of the bigger DJs in the world. I've never played past six o'clock, seven o'clock, you know, or why that, that works so I can headline every festival in the world except for the one in my hometown, you know. But um that's that's just the nature of how the world is. And I'm not, you know, saying it's racist or I'm not, I don't know what to say about it, but I'm just saying if you look at what literal like the facts, I guess. <laughs> That's how it's played out. So maybe that has something to do with it. Instead of championing these artists and these people, I think they're really always put, made go through the back door of the venue, you know, <laughs> in the kind of terms of old jazz, you know, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to reach a different conclusion other than some kind of, you know, form of discrimination, whether it's unconscious or otherwise, right? Yeah, exactly. It mean, seems to be... Evident.
0: And that's the thing that I was saying in, in terms of the black lives matter kind of movement or whatever. And in terms of quantifiable effects in other aspects of music, I mean, there is, uh we're currently working on, a. I helped work with this um, kind of uh, black music um, conference thing that's starting in Ibiza next year. They kind of did a soft launch and there were all these different statistics that they kept bringing up about the amount of artists who work in music in general and the amount of people of color and ethnic people or uh, racially ethnic people who who also have jobs in the industry, and it's staggering the percentages. you know so it's like without representation, there can't really be change. And you know it's kind of funny that like in terms of women, it was like, yeah, let's have 50 percent representation. And parties, and I'm I'm very pro representation of women, you know, but and that that but that that also carried over to mostly non-ethnic women of you know what I'm saying or DJs, you know, in in a way, and and I'm, I'm for I'm for all about this, you know, like that don't don't misquote me here, but then when it came yeah. to the same in the same with the gay culture and being more represented, but then when it came to People of color being represented, there wasn't that call to action in our culture, you know. And that was really silenced fast, you know. And uh, that's that's just kind of that's that's fu- funny things that I think people of color. Uh, not realize, but notice, you know, and I also, I can say, you know, when you go to a rave, it's like 90% white men, you know, I play raves all over the world, you know, it's like, and it's been like that for 30 years and you, you and you and I know, I mean, most of my friends are all white or Caucasian, you know, my, my wife's a white Jewish woman. I'm like, I'm not here to to judge the situation at all. You know, I'm just saying, you know, for like I used to kind of say, um, you know, uh, it. I, I, oh, I, I kind of realized uh, or I, before I realized that women are actually the most subjected people on the planet. And if, you know, people, of, women of color and trans women are the, the hop, the type, the, the, the height of, of, uh, of discrimination, I think. Um, but like, I used to have this thing, like, unless like as a person of color, things happen all the time that you're like, you know, it's that people unconsciously do, or say, or whatever happened. And that's, and that's just society, right? And you're kind of, you notice it. Other people of color notice it, you kind of look at each other. You're like, and women, they go through that every day, if not more things that you and I may say or do that we unconsciously don't know may make them feel horrible, you know, or like just make them feel a, a certain way. That's not inclusive, you know, and it's same in gay culture or, you know, LGBTQ plus. You know, all that, like those things happen. Any any minority group, I think, recognizes these things, you know? So the, these things are happening, you know? And I think people, uh, and, and I guess the um, minority group that I somehow identify with being an African-American, you know, even though I'm very light-skinned. And then my father, my stepfather, who's darker, experiences things much more than I do. But it's things that, you know, you don't really... I did not say even you're really even affected by, you just notice things and kind of like laugh a little bit. You're like, oh, uh, eh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> kind of in like a, almost like a, a Larry David type way. You're like, yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> you <know? laughs> that's, that's, that's just kind of the world, you know? And again, you can't change the world that we started with the things going on, this FIFA tournament and all these things. But I think, people, you know, you notice them, you know, and I think people notice things, and I I don't know. And I just think, like, I feel like the African-American or the black community is the community that gets the least results when it comes to change, and that might be in part of our own disorganization. I don't know, (laughs) like, you know, sometimes when you've been so long, I guess, uh, like, you know, discriminated against, sometimes you're just like, oh, fuck it. Like, I don't I don't really want to fight this fight anymore. Yeah, you know? it becomes
1: a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's yeah. just like, I guess it becomes sort of ingrained. But let me go back to the representation thing. We've talked a lot about like gender representation on the show a lot in the past and kind of come around to that. Well, I mean, like, kind of my view on it is that there should be like a real emphasis on getting more women and girls like making music and DJing. As opposed to just doing this kind of top-down fifty percent lineups thing, which is which is yeah, which is a reasonable thing to to aim for. Completely reasonable.
0: Yeah, it's an easy little thing to aim for. But if you also look at the demographics of dance music, then it's not that's not the demographic. There's not fifty percent of sure of women to men in in the parties. And the same thing I think goes for ethnic minorities. You know, if I look at, a, you know, I even started a label with the Martinez brother to promote people of color, you know, and only put out music from people of color. And we didn't receive so many demos, right? Until it's really hard for right. us to find the music, right? So even in the the act of trying to promote that culture and trying to bring it up, it's like to find musicians and and that fit also the quality control that we were looking for was was very difficult. But I think the more representation, as you see now, the more representation that you have with female DJs. Now there's a lot more DJ female DJs coming through because they see that they can have that dream come true. Right. That that space is there for them to then become a point where that representation will be equal, you know, to men. And I'm and I'm so here for it. And I think the same thing can happen with minorities. The more minorities see or hear music that they kind of um, reflect with. I mean, this is kind of a funny uh, example, but uh, let's say reggaeton and and dance music, right? Right now. It's really annoying (laughs) to me musically. (laughs) It's annoying to me musically. (laughs) But however, I can see now because of that becoming a trend, more people from that culture are now in the house music, you know, and that's undeniable. You know, so many people in South America, so many people who are uh, Latino are now getting back in the house because it has a representation that they understand. I mean, I think it's very hard for maybe people from minority groups or African-American black communities to look at Neo trance or whatever and be like, yo, I'm feeling this dog. <laughs> you know, like it's hard to make that step of being like, of seeing people, you know, kind of like at a rave, listen to us, and be like, yeah, this is for me. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, so it's like, but the more you see other artists who you represent. And I mean, I've, I, and I've had a lot of, you know, young, young African-American kids, other kids come up to me and they're like, yo, because of you and seeing you, on stage with the Martinez brothers or so other people, they're like, oh, I, I realized that this is a a scene or something that I could to be involved in. And then that that pushed them to make music. Same with black coffee and the whole thing that's happened in Africa. You know, In Africa, house music is very much an African sound. It's a black sound. I and mean, there's so many artists now coming from Africa from that community. You know, So at the end of the day, it's about representation. And again, it's not about like providing all the answers or whatever to why there's less people of color in European and American dance culture, but it is, uh, visually something that you can see. And it's something that we could somehow address a little bit more. I mean, it's again, like I'm not trying to solve the problems of the world. I'm just saying, calling it how I see it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, having those kind of role models, those kind of examples of success really does make a huge difference, doesn't it? Like yeah, you said, it's a huge with, difference. You know, The female DJs now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hard techno parties put on DJ rush, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hey. right.
1: Book right.
0: rush at a bunch exactly. of parties. you know, there's other the artists are there to be booked. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like, just, you know, just think about it a little bit more, I guess. And then I think more people will be drawn to the culture and then it, We can all live in our super neoliberal happy bubbles, like giving ourselves pats on the back, like we saved the fucking world, right? (laughs) <laughs> let me let me ask you about um
1: we've been talking before about the like the, the, the kind of first wave of Detroit acts and you know, as a someone who grew up in that area, like how much of a thing was it for you like consciously when you first started getting into music, like those guys and the kind of legacy of the of the city in electronic music, how much of a thing that was was that for you as a kid? Oh, this is
0: this is this right here is the funny part <laughs> okay okay. <laughs> Now I'm going to get the comedy on you, right? So growing up okay. with, with those people around, right, and that legacy around, I was really into Richie Houghton. <laughs> right. okay. So in, in German techno, because my parents were into that stuff. It was on the radio all the time. It was massively represented. You know, I remember, I mean, I did my first record with Omar S., and at some point, those guys asked me, you know, like I was, I was, you know, doing, um, I was like basically an intern for Omar that's when I was like starting college and, and, and late in high school. I worked at this record store, Melodies and Memories. Terrence Parker worked there. Theo worked there. All these people worked there. You know, was, that's how I came up. And from 15 to 21, I worked at this record store. I made a record on Fexy when I was 17. And, you know, like literally Theo, Omar, and Malik taught me how to like program music, right? I'd go to Omar's right. basement and they would teach me how to do baselines, all this stuff. And um, at some point I was going to raves with Rich and Magda, who I've known for my whole life and all these people. And they were like, Seth, you know, they really made me make an active choice of like being like, you, do you want to be part of the, Detroit black legacy or are you more into this techno stuff and at the time I was like yo I'm into going to raves hanging out with fucking <laughs> taking drugs <and> like <laughs> doing this other shit you know like cuz I was going to parties with those guys and it was mostly an older black crowd I was like everyone here's a same age as my fucking parents I'm not just like I'm trying to go hang out bro wow really <laughs> you know wow. so I mean it's kind of funny now cuz like you know in hindsight I kind of wish I would have stayed on that track um, And those people.
1: Hang on a second. Let me me just ask you about that in particular. Like in the city then. So, was there a bit of a divide between the plus eight crew, right? Total racial
0: divide. Complete racial divide. I mean, a lot of those people used to hate Rich. Like they hated what he standed for, how he kind of in their minds hijacked what techno was and the identity of techno from Detroit. There still is a lot of animosity between the two sides when it comes to Detroit. Uh, dance music. It's I mean, Detroit itself is the archetype of segregation. You know, <laughs> like if you look at how the counties are. That. Yeah, well, Detroit. So how Detroit is made, right? Is so Detroit is the combination of three counties: Detroit County, or Wayne County, Macomb County, and Oakland County. Oakland County, where I grew up, where all you know, Ford, all these came, all these big corporations have their headquarters is one of the most wealthy per capita counties in the nation, where Wayne County, where Detroit is, is one of the poorest, right? And it's the great movie by Eminem, Eight Mile, is after you pass Eight Mile, is you enter Oakland County. That's the end of Detroit, right? And it goes from before kind of crack houses to picket white fences on the other side of a freeway, right? And- (laughs) Like that's really
1: is that the freeway? Hang on a sec, because I I, I I read you've about been there. yeah, I've, I've 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 been there, sure. But like I read about the construction of a freeway. I think it was in the late '60s, which yeah. which was seemingly a kind of intentional way to screw
0: the the African American community. It, yeah, it's a class and racial divider. It's right after Eight Mile,
1: right? And that was that's that's what it was, right? Okay, that's sorry, what Karen. it is. Yeah,
0: that's that's. A, yeah. So then, then you have like kind of the suburbs where you know Eminem grew up, and then you have. Macomb County, which is downriver, which is kind of more like the poor whites, let's say, you know, like uh, <laughs> in a term of Dave Chappelle, <laughs> he's like, <to> put <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> the white niggas live down there, I guess. <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> um, so, no, but that's, that's how the, the, the and so Detroit itself is 700,000 people and um, Detroit metro area 3.5 million people, you know, and a lot of People dealt with the kind of the race riots of the 60s and 70s and all this crazy things that happened, you know, crack epidemic, all these fucking things that made Detroit Detroit for so many years. And I mean, now it's really changed. And now we had this thing called the white flight, the whole I mean, it's like a whole fucking thing, you know. And but that kind of kind of class and racial divide, I think, also was musically part of it i mean i remember even to in terms of when they did the detroit 25 or something like De- some years ago um they were collecting all these detroit artists to play in these these shows around the world and you know i'm i'm very good friends with these people now and stacy at the time was like yo you know is it right we're on the same time i got the number one dj at ra and stacy was like yo we have to have seth come play stacy pullen and uh, yep. the kind of collective of people behind the 25 were like, they're like, no, Seth's from Oakland County. <laughs> no. Wow. <What>? Wow, really? <laughs> like I'm from the other side Jeez. of the, the, the the. I think this is right before I got the number one DJ and RA. And then, uh, but then Stacy was like, yeah, you know, Seth worked at the shop. He's been in the scene forever. And they're like, no, he's not from Detroit. Then I remember when I got the Detroit number one, my now friend tour, Carl Craig, Carl's a very good friend of mine and a very deep mentor to me and after I got the number one he had tweeted he's like Detroit's very own Seth Troxler and I was like so (laughs) I was like am I in now and he's like you're in (laughs) <laughs> you know, and after that, I was like, then part of the legacy with those guys. But before that, it was like, no, bro, you're from Kalamazoo and Lake Orion. You're not part of this shit. You know, and it was—it's wow. very guarded wow. how that whole s- scene and situation is, and and rightly so. You know, I I feel that's the impression I have of
1: it. Yeah, is that it's it's very kind of protective of itself, and the the artists are very kind of aware and. It's almost like suspicious of outsiders
0: a little bit. Is that fair? Hundred percent, a hundred percent, and I and I and I totally understand that. You know, I mean, when you see when everything that's happened to them and happened to the culture that they created, and how they were left out of it, and all, all, all their kind of feelings of of what happened, I guess you know. Even though my feelings of a suburban kid who moved to Detroit, moved to Berlin at twenty-one, and my kind of uh, involvement in electronic music. Had been very different. And I think in some ways, the color of my skin helped. And being a suburban kid helped with my kind of career. You know, I remember coming to Berlin and playing early. And yeah, I was Seth from Detroit, but I was also a suburban kid who speaks how I do, who's into raving, who is very open to everyone and not as suspicious. And I think that very much helped my career in Europe, you know, and like in some ways, having the tag of Detroit, but being more palatable, you know. And I think that's kind of like a, like in that cold kind of old way of saying passing within um a community you know uh within the kind of the general kind of let's say mass culture community or whatever you know it's not so hard to someone who's very much less urban to accept and kind of see and like you know but still be Detroit, but still be a lot easier to to you know adjust to instead of being like. You know so combative with with other people you know Detroit artists can Detroit artists can be motherfuckers with people I like that I like it about Detroit people you know they don't go fuck right. but uh, <laughs> you know it doesn't there's it.
1: a lot of DJs and artists who sort of say they're from Detroit and make that a big part of kind of their pitch as it were but who are definitely not part of that group right
0: <laughs> yeah I mean and uh, many I mean if you even look at uh Derek and all them, they were actually from Detroit, <laughs> you know, they're, from, they're, from, they're from a town down river, you know, right. So,
1: right.
0: It's kind of funny. They're all like middle-class, like their parents had like really good jobs at Ford and all that stuff. So it's just, it's funny, this Belleville, if you're like middle management, upper middle management, you would live there. It's like a nicer suburb. I mean, if you look at, you know, Matt, Mike Banks and all them, they from D, they, they real Detroit. I mean, also right. Derek May and all those guys are all real Detroit too, and you know I'm not taking that away from any of them, you know. But it's just kind of funny, sure. like in terms of technicality of the the um, city, I guess, uh, boundaries per se, you know. Right, like local politics, right? <laughs> local, locally, where I mean, where, where you where you grew up, which I mean, it really breaks down to which high school you went to for a lot of them, you know. The, did you go to Cast Tech or not, you know? If you get down into the real nitty gritty, I mean, it's really funny growing up in Detroit, how everyone has their own story of how it really happened. I mean, really, Detroit was kind of more of a house town with Ken Collier and disco and all this other stuff, you know, Delano and those guys are really the old guys. Delano Smith and all the old house guys are really the the kind of the first if you really want to get technical about a lot of the stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talked about the difference between culture and music. Right. And my understanding is there was never really a big techno, quote unquote techno scene. In no, Detroit. No, prior I, mean, to,
0: I mean, the music right. industry was, was open like a year, I think, you know, but there was, there's always been a real big house and dance music culture and music culture for dancing in Detroit. But I would say more the techno thing was more exported uh, to Europe, you know, In terms of there being really famous parties, I mean, not till the 90s with Rich and all this stuff and doing these plastic wearing parties. Was it like thousands of people, you know? The techno thing was like kind of high school cliques then like kids making some music. And it was really based around those really like four or five people. And then, you know, later in the 90s with underground resistance doing parties and and that type of stuff. But those, those weren't like real mass events in Detroit. You know, they was uh it was definitely a movement uh that was happening in the city and that was you know they had everyone at submerge and everything in the studios there but it was much more of an exported situation
1: yeah i think people that's well i think that's a commonly misunderstood thing cuz i think everyone well there is a there is a kind of widespread an kind of understanding that techno is detroit but like you said it was it was not a kind of, it was a music and not a culture thing. And like, actually- It was uh, a music
0: thing, much more than a cultural thing. Exactly. It was like a lot of people were making techno and there was a hub, a group of people together who were exchanging ideas and building this thing and then coming to Europe to play. But it wasn't like there was these very famous techno clubs or parties that were happening constantly in Detroit. I mean, I think the suburban kids- uh, in the early '90s, I think that is what became the Detroit techno scene. Was white suburban kids come to Detroit listening to this music, listening to it on the radio, and those were the from from my now. I mean, I started partying in like the end of the '99, 2000. But all the stories that I heard coming up, you know, really was like Mike Saravito and Carlos and all those people. They were the people who were part of that early rave scene or that cultural scene in Detroit not the people making the music but the people attending the events and and throwing the parties
1: yeah 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 that's the key distinction so what was your route then to Europe like how did you turn up at (laughs) P-Bar age 19 or whatever however old you were when you first played it
0: well yeah I was 19 I just finished high school (laughs) how did that happen (laughs) Well, it's funny because I was talking to Gerd about it because Gerd, Jensen, actually, and um, and Karsten, uh, Christian from Ame, he, uh, he they had booked. So basically they had booked Omar, right? Them and Playhouse right. at Panorama Bar. And Omar was like, I'm going to bring my cousin. <laughs> and I'm not really his cousin, but he told him I was his cousin and <laughs> to open up for him because he didn't want to come alone. So, so that, that's how I came over. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so you obviously made a big impression, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was DJing for a long time and playing a lot of clubs. I was, I've been throwing raves since I was like 16 and stuff. So I was already deep in the culture. We had started the vision quest thing. We were playing, you know, with Brian Kosenik. And I think I was already even already being booked by Brian Kosenik, who now does uh, the bunker and all that stuff and hanging out with all these people. I yeah. was a Detroit scene kid, you know, with, I was, I worked at ghostly as an intern when I was that age and all this other stuff. So I was very much involved, you know, I, I mean, with all these people. So uh, like, it was already kind of something I was doing. I was making a lot of music. I then started to make music with this label, Beretta and ghostly and all, uh, spectral and all that stuff around that same time. But uh, so it was like, I was, I was in, you know, I was like obsessed but uh, that's, that was the thing that kind of opened the door, I guess, yeah, to me coming to Europe. Yeah, sure. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
1: That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a
0: month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Cool. And like, was music something that you were like fixated on from a early age? And what, I guess what I mean there is like, did you know you wanted to do it as a, as a career. It's,
0: since I was 13, this is all I've ever wanted to do. My stepdad was a DJ. All of his friends were DJs. Like That's how I got into house music, from when I was like eight or something like that. Like really early on, I was listening to dance music. And then we moved to the suburb of Detroit when I was like 13. And I went to this rave uh, with Frankie Bones, Adam X, and Heather Hart. Like during I was, I was supposed to go to my, um, it was Homecoming, my freshman year homecoming and we and my friends pulled that classic i'm staying at your house you're staying at my house and then we went to a rave instead <laughs> and then, uh yeah the classic teenage shit and then uh yeah and then i basically went to this rave saw them play and then i've gone to a rave almost every weekend the rest of my life um that's fucking right <laughs> 23 literally, right? <laughs> literally yeah 23 years later um <laughs> So yeah, it's something, and it's even kind of funny. I mean, as you know, I know you had some injuries and stuff, and you took some time out. to get some health stuff, and mm. you know, and we've been in the game for for a long time, you know. And at mm-hmm. so at some point, you have to. You're like, D- how do I? Do I love that? Or like, you know, you, you have different relationships, love and hate with, with doing this job. Like I think we're being involved with this culture. I think everyone has who's been in, in it for so long, you know, and really given so much of their life, their relationships, their, the sacrifice, you know, all this, all the shit, but the good and bad that goes with it. And then I found in the lockdown, how much I really, really love with all my heart, electronic music and just like oh God I fucking love it, it I, I'm a kind of emotionally can be an emotionally somewhat closed person and some of the stuff and the feelings I get when I listen to some of this music just transcends me to a place that I can't really express in, in other ways I mean I even had a very funny one this is horrible my right? people I mean people are gonna this interview was pretty <laughs> it's pretty controversial but um <laughs> whatever it's honest um, when i had my son you know who i love so unconditionally i was thinking about the love i have for him and the love i have for electronic music i mean and obviously he's higher but it was like the, ju- <laughs> the ju- i was like wow i really love electronic music because it's close right <laughs> I mean, Right. (laughs) I was like, I love this kid, but I really love this music too. I mean, I love him a little bit. Like, I love him more, obviously. But I was like, not. It's not that drastic, you know. In terms of feeling, at times, I don't know. That's that's horrible to say, but it's true.
1: No, no, no. I mean, like the lockdown, I think, um, was, well, I mean, I, I sort of read an interview of yours previously that you said that you you needed a holiday and you felt you needed a holiday for ages. And I was absolutely the same thing. And I think a lot of people who do the touring circuit and had done it for years on end felt overwhelmed by it. And that was certainly my experience of it. But then when it gets taken away, you realize what it is and what it means to you. Right. And it is, it is important. And there's a reason why you wanted to do it in the first place, right. Which is quite easy to lose sight of when you're on the kind of hamster wheel of three shows a week, you know, for
0: God uh, knows how long. For, yeah, for a decade. For longer than you could, for, like I always say, when you've been doing it longer than you couldn't, then you haven't, right? Like when it crosses right. that point of your life where you're like, holy shit, I think I've been doing, I've been, like when you know people longer than you haven't known them, you know, you're like, wow, you, this has been the majority of my life. And now I think after that break, I don't, See myself taking getting off it. I mean, obviously, I, I take more time off for my family and all these other things. But I'm more hungry than ever. I think I've made more music in the past two years than I have in the past decade, you know? <laughs> like, right. just loving it again, like, so much. I love it. I fucking love it. And I love playing. And and I'm, like, happier to play. I mean, I think at some point, as an artist, you get in this headspace of why you're doing it. And blah, and trying to be experimental and, you know, educate people and this and that. And now I'm just like, whatever, I'm just going to play the fucking bangers, make people happy at raves <laughs> and have a good time and go home to my family. You know, like, like it doesn't have to be so complicated in your mind as it always did, you know, like it can be just like right. functional and cool. And like, here's some good music. You probably haven't heard because it's older than 90% of the people of the club but they're fucking dope jams. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm here for it, you know? So just
1: going back to going back to the kind of early period of you kind of breaking through, how much of a ambition was it to do stuff like winning the RA poll and, and all that massive. kind of stuff? Massive. Like, it was, was a it? massive ambition yeah.
0: for me when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up and listening to like Global Underground CD, <clears throat> CDs and stuff and being like unless I can mix as good as they can on this CD, then I'm not good enough, you know? And then at some point with the RA and all that stuff, I got, it kept going higher, right? I was like 10, then I was like five, then not, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was like inching, inching, two, you know? And then like, finally I got to this like number one moment. And then I just realized it was all bullshit and it didn't really matter. And then I started, and then I started like posting about politics and all this other stuff. And I very quickly went down, (laughs) <laughs> very quickly right, went down right. from like one to like 20 like you know being like hey you know there's all this other stuff that's really important happening in the world maybe use my platform to kind of like find some light on all this like back to the beginning in our all these righteous causes that I thought the world was facing and I was internet famous and I could change the world and I just realized very fast that I was very wrong <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean i think like like watching you from afar right like you've always been a someone of extremes in the way you present yourself so from the like some, some pretty amusing publicity stunts like you know the appearing <laughs> the, the, the naked appearance and various other ones you know like, but
0: all that stuff that is like semi publicity stunts weren't really publicity stunts they're all kind of points that i reinterpreted from art history because i went to art school like right. the naked okay. thing was from Stefan Stagmeister when he launched right. when he launched his own um, uh, ad agency. Like every single, it's kind of funny actually because people think I'm a lot crazier than I actually am. But every single thing that people think I've done is crazy actually was done by someone else in our history.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's, that that's doesn't like, necessarily make them any less crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from, from in the eye of the beholder, right?
0: But at least they were like you know semi
1: thought about <laughs> oh no absolutely I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, well I mean like I said it was, it's still an extreme way to present yourself right and as I said looking at it from afar it's like it creates a like a public image right and you've said a quote that I pulled out of an interview was that you said that I used to be a very polarising figure and I think that was sort of the effect the cumulative effect of like those sorts of uh, those sorts of moves I mean like I don't know I mean, how do you look back on that period now
0: uh, yeah, it's very funny because like, I mean, also some things I said, you know, like, oh my God, when you're young and dumb, like you just say everything, <laughs> you know, and you know, like I, the things I said about EDM, about people, about all sorts of stuff, I was, going be kind of an asshole, you know? Oh, I mean, I've been there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, coming from Detroit, it's, I mean, it's better to have an opinion to have no opinion at all, you know? And I look back at it and I was like, well, I could have been nicer to some people. But some of the things I think needed still needed to be said. I mean, it's kind of funny, though. Now that I've become a father and post pandemic, I just like think there's enough for everyone in the culture and the scene. I just wish the best for everyone. And I'm kind of like really not trying to, you know, not I would say not trying to rock the boat, but just like, you know, it's like who? Ooh, you know, opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one, you know. <laughs> sure. And yeah. at some point, you are just like I can just keep some of my opinions to myself. But generally, I mean, the only thing that I think I kind of regret from that time is some of my antics took away from the from the artistry that I was doing. And people, you know, obviously my fans who see me play and come to my you know, ten hour sets or you know when I'm playing at Panorama Bar, all these other things, people. Who actually really listened to me they never went away but a lot of I guess some other people would always put me in a category or whatever who never even listened to me play or whatever just kind of like bunch me in with friends of mine who are just like friends of mine like okay he's he's friends with these people so he plays music like that and he says some stuff so he plays bad music and that was never the case you know I've always played like really cool stuff i think that kind of took away from some of the artistry and that frustrated me for years but now that i'm older and i'm just putting out music and doing incredible things with the lost souls of saturn project you know we're like doing the most insane things you know we did one of the, we had an installation that was in the saatchi gallery and like you know been exhibited in you know the met and all these crazy places foundation byler multiple things i just did a Collaboration with Olaf Larson and like really crazy high art stuff that no one really notices except for people in museums, which is cool. But, um, you know, people still think I make tech house. but like, whatever. Um, So it's like, I just kind of, I kind of, I kind of just like got to this point where I'm like, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And I'm starting a new label right now called Slacker just to put out music. I never had a label just to myself. I always did labels with friends and kind of other stuff that was somewhat meaningful or unmeaningful. And you know, now I just want to do something that's just about my legacy in art. So I'm kind of working on that. And yeah, just kinda of, Yeah, it's just you get older, you know. I'm nearly 40 now, man. And I you know, I was number one DJ when I was twenty-four, you know, twenty-five. Right. It's like, yeah, it, it's great. And it's that's crazy pretty crazy how the that time is pretty young. Yeah. I mean, I think this scene saw me grow up as a human too, you right, know? You know, from when you're in college, just out of college, to like, you know, being a father, I think it's a huge jump in just maturity in general. You know, you go through a lot of different, a lot of different stuff and just trying to also being, it's kind of funny, you know? Also, like, if you look at Jack, you know, Jack Master, dear friend of mine who I continue to support for so long, so many people and so many artists even now coming up are like, rewarded for kind of their bad behavior and then at one point they do one thing wrong and then you know it's everything's fucked and i think that's like also a problem with our scene you know like you re- they reward people for this really like animal behavior like yeah cool and like the agents the everything you know they push really for you to be this maniac and then you know then they'll like everyone's surprised when being a maniac goes a little, you know, a little too far, and it's like, you know, you guys were paying me for this shit. Like,
1: okay, well, yeah. Since you mentioned it, let me ask you the question. I mean, I think we've all got friends who, who challenge your loyalty at some stage, right? I mean, everyone makes mistakes, yeah. But I mean, where it's something which affects your or potentially affects your career like that, I mean, it really. It does kind of test your I don't know about loyalty, but like, I don't know. I mean, I, like, I mean, how difficult was that situation with Jack for you? Cause you've played with him since that happened. And you know, there were, there, yeah. were, there were people who did like support him, Like You know, Soko Loco certainly supported him all the way through it. So it, it certainly wasn't a, like a full scale
0: canceling or whatever, but like, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I think, I think the Jack situation is, is very complicated. I think Jack got kind of caught up, not only in his behavior, but like a lot of different politics. I mean, the time that that happened, right? I'm not. I'm not making any excuses for Jack, but the time the Jack thing happened, his father, who Jack only had one parent left. His mother died when he was a kid. Just passed away. Okay, he he had been heavily self medicating to a point that was dangerous for him. He had been sent to the hospital many. You know, there's there's a lot of A lot of fucking issues going on there, right? The thing that happened at that festival, which his ex-manager, Rag, was formerly a part of, had got kicked out of the festival, had a lot of, there's a lot of animosity between the then festival owners and that team that Jack was behind. And then Jack, yeah, he did a bunch of D, he picked someone up, he dropped them, tried to give them a kiss after dropping them and licked a man's head. Okay, inappropriate behavior, right? That's actually what happened. Is Jack a rapist? I say now and I still say, I don't think he's a sexual predator. I think there are many sexual predators within our scene that have not been called out. And I'm not going to be one to call them out, but there's people out there where people are like, this guy's fucking spaghetti hands, you know? You see him around, you see some of the stuff they say, you're like, that's inappropriate, you know? And those people are out. And I think... At the time, especially like people were looking for someone to put a lot of frustrations towards. Jack became that scapegoat and he's still fighting a lot of that stuff. And he still has, you know, has his demons of fighting with drug issues here and there. But anyone who knew Jack knew he was a good person, you know, and I think Jack did a lot to try to correct that problem. I know the person, the girl who was the main person who was assaulted in that situation was very much a supporter of Jack and didn't want that situation to go down as it did, you know? But that's the world we live in, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I am so against sexual assault. My I came from a single mother, and my mother was abused by my father. I am the biggest feminist on the planet, you know? And I think anyone who does things should be prosecuted, you know, and, and, and held responsible for those things. I think also as a culture... We have to look at circumstance and we also have to look at at some point after doing a crime. Is there a point that a very forward thinking culture that we represent, is there a point where someone can be rehabilitated? Have And if they have shown rehabilitation or remorse or some type of thing for a crime, can they be left back in our culture? You know what I'm saying? And that's that's the I think that's. That's the kind of funny thing with the Jack situation. I mean, Circle Loco no longer supports him because there are people within our culture who are actually at times very close, dear friends of Jacks who are still blocking him from returning. You know, and who are who are women? <laughs> you know, and I, I just think at some point it's like, where do we all stand in terms of represent not representation, but in terms of forgiveness, you know, like, and like what can, can like one person under severe mental distress and one action then cancel out all the good actions that they've done their whole career. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I think Kanye West is in a very similar situation currently, you know, I, I think at maybe rap artists are forgiven faster than electronic music and artists. But I think in, a scene that we represent that is very progressive. It's like, when do we start to then talk about, you know, how okay, there we we address the crime, but how do we address the progress and rehabilitation of reaccepting people or or do we are people canceled forever? And I think that's something that cancel culture really has to look at and start to imagine. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know. Again, like Maybe I get canceled for even saying that I, I think he shouldn't be canceled anymore. I, I don't fucking know. But, you know, at some point, I know he's a fucking good guy who treats women with respect. So, I mean, that's the personal, my personal view towards Jack and other people who I know don't treat women with respect, I don't respect them. So, you know, that's, that's
1: that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, the term council culture and the everything around it, I get the impression that it's, peaked possibly or at least has acquired a degree of nuance which maybe allows for that rehabilitation of people a little bit more i mean i think there was definitely a point at which it was a very binary thing and if you did something which was deemed to be over the line then it was really problematic for you i mean i had at the time of that situation with jack i had an argument with someone online over uh, like comparing it to the 10 walls situation
0: that was completely different that was completely different. Right. Ten Wall situation was like meditated, like that was his views, right? Like straight up like he sure, but- was anti-gay, homophobic, like like you know. Yeah. I think the Jack situation was more nuanced, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the the difference that well, the difference that I pointed out, right, to the person who I was arguing with, who I won't name, but everyone's heard of. Like when you when you express a view you can always change your mind, right? And you can always be argued round. And the difference between doing something physical is there's two very different things, right? I mean, I'm whatever. I mean, at, at the time it was very ambiguous what the actual incident with Jack had been, and like you know, I, I take your explanation of it at face value. I don't know what happened, but like, yeah, if, if that's what you're saying, then that's then fair enough. And it's particularly in the views of the victim of it like you know that seems like a situation which there was room for you know legitimate apology and and then the ability to move on i think like when you're expressing an opinion there should always be room in people's minds for there to be a adjustment of that opinion if you if you see what i mean and i do agree like what he said was fucking terrible just beyond awful Yeah, yeah but but at the same time, you've always got to give someone the benefit of, well, not the benefit, maybe the benefit of that is the wrong word, but like the opportunity to be argued round.
0: Yeah. I right? think, that I think sense? opinion, I think opinion though, is almost worse than what one, a one-off action, right? Because in some ways in the 10 world situation, his opinion came from a very deep place of prejudice, Right. Were Jack's well, action? Maybe.
1: I, I don't know him, but like,
0: yeah, no, I, I can see why you say that. Yeah, if you if you if you adamantly hate a group of people with that much kind of that the hatred, yeah, it was pretty terrible. The, the hatred said, yeah. He, yeah. he expressed compared to someone whose family just died and was taking a bunch of G and was like, you know, like just being a bit wild, you know, that's like one, like, you know, and not to say that like a drunk blackout drunk person. Isn't that person, but you know what I'm saying? It's not like, Mm -hmm. I think it's not like a repeated. And I think also with the 10 walls thing, even when he had the chance to back down on it, he expressed his opinion again, you know? And I think, I think maybe over time now, 10 walls, some years later can come back or even a year later can come back. And like, you know, maybe his opinions had changed and maybe he did some things like Jack did donated a bunch of money Went to all these rehabs. Like, if you show that you're like actually trying to make a change in your behavior, then I think we should allow those people back, no matter what their transgressions may have been, you know, in opinion or action. You know, if someone like really takes, like Jack has done, three, four, five years of you know rehabilitations, all these things, you know, for one night, for one, for one small action that you know wasn't really. I mean, I I might kind of say it wasn't really because everyone has their own whatever. But at some point, you know, has this, you know, has done everything physically possible and has the greatest amount of remorse, who cries about the thing. Who, You know what I'm saying? Who really deeply is profoundly like then as a society, I think we should reaccept those people, much like people who've gone to prison and come out. Once you have paid your debt to society, I think society should 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 accept you again you know i mean and then there's like the remission rate like let's say if someone then has another 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 incident after you know the the main incident or like like a prisoner who then gets sent back to jail that's another conversation right then maybe they are a criminal and maybe they shouldn't be allowed back into society you know violent crimes all these you know whatever but uh in terms of allowing people to come back you know i think I think it's. I think we should. We as a, a community who face it, who bases ourselves in progress, you know, and, and neoliberal ideas and, you know, and like liberalism, you know, and this kind of thing of of you know really being forward thinking. I think it's something that cancel that our culture should really start to look at and be like, yeah. Because I mean, so many. I don't know if you know Jack. or what, I don't know. We keep going back to Jack, but so many people love these people, you know, and it's like, hey. And they know them, you know. So it's like, why are we still vilifying some people who some of our culture knows, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there's always a there should always be a way back. And, a I, path. and the, the point about a path, yeah, right? And the point about the point about prisoners and ex convicts is is really kind of. I mean, I, I, I feel that really strongly, actually. Like, it's one of the worst aspects of of society is that like going to prison essentially ruins your life, regardless. Like it's extremely difficult to get a job if you've you know if you've been to prison. It's extremely difficult to do anything constructive, and that's why you know reconviction rates are so high. As you know, people, and it's part of the same thing. It's like
0: gone. No, it's a, I'm a hundred percent with you because like, what are people going to do when they've been outcast by society and they have to survive at some point? And how do you expect them to get better, <laughs> right? Like, or what's better, right? You know, and it's like what we're where, where do you expect these people to go, you know? And people who have so much to contribute to life, you know? But then at the same time, it's funny if you get like a white collar crime and you steal a fucking billion dollars from people, then you get a job at fucking Morgan Stanley as soon as you get out, you know? It's like, what the fuck?
1: <laughs> right, or you don't go to jail at all, like in the yeah. case of everyone involved in 2008 and probably the FTX guy right
0: now, yeah. right? Oh, he exactly. He's not, he's not going to get anything. He should, he should be in jail, jail. He should be in jail for fucking 30, 40 years. Like you should be fucked. He should be in jail already, you know, like straight to jail like you murdered someone because he took the livelihood away from fucking millions of people probably with that FDX car. Like I just saw like the other day, like a teacher's union, put all their fucking money in there, lost it. You know, like really, you really affected so many people with zero consequence, you know, and that's that's. I think with her society, but no one's really talking about that. No one's like, oh, San Friedman's the worst, you know? Like, it's it's funny. And then and then at the well, I, mean, I mean he,
1: he gave his uh, political donations in the right place, right? Yeah, so.
0: exactly. Then you got Kanye, and I'm not saying again, my wife is Jewish. I I support Israel, don't support Bibi, the current prime minister. But Kanye, who is in the middle of a very, very obvious like mental health crisis, like he's like twitching on TV, and like he's he's having a like like you know for example like Stephen Fry many times has had these public health crisis done crazy stuff. A week later, been like, I'm sorry, I was having an episode. S- Society accepts him back. Kanye, you could see was saying things just to provoke, you know, <laughs> like to go as far as he could off his medicine. Cancelled from all of society, right? You know, and, and it's just kind of funny. Where Friedman, this other guy, the FTX guy, he's just basically cleaned out the you know the livelihood of millions of people, and it's like, oh, have a have a have a good have a good holiday with your bankrupt company. It's just it's kind of funny of how society casts blame on on actual. I don't I don't know. Like what Kanye said hurt many people, and I and I really am on that that side. And you know, he he shouldn't have said those things. I believe that. But like what the other people do that actually hurt people indefinitely, you Eterotic. know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 literally hurt people faces no consequence. And I think that's a funny thing with canceling people in society and all these things. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Actually, I mean, look at Trump. I mean, he's waged a fucking insurrection against the government. Zero consequence. <laughs> like, I, people go to jail longer for a dime bag of weed.
1: <laughs> and, and 100%. People who, too, 100%. Like,
0: like, beat up cops and try to take over the government. And they're like, like, that kid, fucking Kyle Righthouse, who went to that place, shot four people. He is a domestic terrorist. He came to, like, uh, uh, a protest with well, a Black Lives Matter protest, actually, shot five people with an assault rifle when he was underage. In the opposite states, we came with a, a combative with a gun, got off, and now he's like this right wing fucking wonder kid. And it's like celebrity, you right? You're your a celebrity like, who killed people, <laughs> you know. And it's just like, didn't his mom drop him off or something? I think his yeah, mom
1: drove him to the his mom drove him and right. dropped him
0: off with an assault rifle to combat people. You're not a fucking cop. You're not, you know. And like, and that's like the insanity. Of this going back to the very beginning of our. Conversation, the insanities and the sense of like of this is, that we're living in the world that we're living in doesn't. This is not making sense anymore, you know. And it's like people want to use their, point their collective rage at different sources at different times, and like, oh, I'm so angry at everything. This is the this is going to be the martyr for this rage. When there is people that are, really are behind the collective rage that we could much rather use our influence and sources to really try to make change. And from climate to policy to all these different things, there—it's very easy to pinpoint the source of our problems. But it's a lot easier to make martyrs of people who are do one thing wrong, and then they're like that—that—and uh, I mean, Kathy Griffin, <laughs> she got kicked off of Twitter instantly. You know, it's like it's just shit has died. I don't know. It's mad. The world is mad, and it's nice to talk about it. <laughs> i don't know where this conversation is going we're just like kind of rambling about the insanities of of society you know yeah don't don't
1: worry i've got i've got a music question in a minute so that's okay okay. (laughs) (laughs) i've got i've got my hand on matilla here just about yeah but um in fact let's let's let me just ask you that now something you referred to before which is the lost souls of saturn project with Phil Moffat. yeah so let's talk about music for one sec shall we yeah Um, (laughs) Tell me how that came about. Cause I think it's, it's pretty interesting. Like the, the kind of breadth of what you're doing with that project. So tell me about the kind of initial conception of it and how it's developed.
0: Well, it's, it's speaking of tin hats, um, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the project was like, so Phil and I had started working together almost 10 years ago and I needed a studio to rent in New York. And um, actually the Martinez brothers and Sean, their manager was like, Hey, there's this guy, Phil, got a great studio. So I was in his studio, and I mean, I'm really good at programming music, arranging and writing music. I suck at hooking up machines and getting everything to sync. I, I'm fucking not good at that. Hand up in the air, right? So I rent this guy's studio. <laughs> like I'm like, I just can't. I can't, I can't sync machines. This is like, I, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. I'm good at, in the box, but when it's switching to electronic. So anyway, I rented his studio, and I uh, was making all this music, and then after- a few days of making music, I was like, hey, do you want to write something together just for some fun? And we had, like, another day left. And he's like, why not? And it really, we're like, wow, this is fucking crazy, the stuff we were writing. So then we started writing some music together. And somehow, like, us hanging out, stuff about Saturn keep coming up, right? And then we started doing all this weird research and, like, David Icke shit. Like, really, tin hat stuff started coming up, <laughs> right? Like, But then all this stuff started going about, like, the, and this was before Trump, actually. And You know, I've always been into a bit of conspiracy theory myself, but the good ones, not not the stupid ones people are into now, (laughs) the ones that seem semi-true. And all this stuff started to lead to, like, basically the arc conspiracy being Saturn worship, which for thousands of years, all these secret societies have worshipped Saturn. So then we started coming up with this idea of, like, okay, um, if there was some conspiracy theory to be true and through all this stuff we came up we saw this thing called the saturn moon matrix that the moon um is like a, a amplifier or a satellite that creates some of a holographic reality on earth kind of simulation theory stuff and then we're really into john carpenter and some of the ideas he has and they live and all this other stuff and all this stuff This we started to come up with these like kind of theory that like if there was um a protagonist antagonist of society and someone was to benefit from all the ills and all the fucked up stuff that we're having in society then like maybe saturn was it so then we created this art installation where um and a film that we had these four large light boxes that um we use kandinsky's color theory of human emotion that anytime these human emotions were uh, shown in the film that we had that was this um kind of plot that is incredible movie that goes with our album that was on are announced that we kind of in, uh, enacted these, um, the first augmented reality cover for an album, all this kind of crazy stuff. Then, uh, so anytime these things happen in the film, blah, 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 it, uh, it made these colors, and then uh, your human emotions are affected by this. And then, like, it's a constantly evolving film that like gets updated with all these things that are happening in society that have to go back to Saturn worship. So now, uh, we've just finished our second album where we've kind of used augmented reality again. And it's a comic to kind of tell the origin story of this cube of Saturn and these aliens from Saturn who use this power crystal to kind of control the Earth kind of in like a synodal type of Rick and Morty, <laughs> like kind of <laughs> fucked up, crazy, <laughs> insane way. Um, I'll send you, I can send you a video afterwards. It's fucking crazy. So the uh, uh, basically we, we created now the first augmented reality synesthesia based comic where um through the comic each panel launches different um sound clips and the audio design for the album much like a soundtrack would so as you use the phone in our app to go through the comic the uh the story i mean the, the comic then comes alive like becomes animation and then uh the soundtrack which is the album kind of goes starts to play as you kind of think of like an Ableton clip each panel of the ca- the the of the comic trivers a different clip so then that clip then slowly evolves the music and different sound effects and all this stuff cuz we're like okay we couldn't make a 20 million dollar movie but we can make a 50 page comic that tells the story and uh, <laughs> so that's like a short brief synopsis on, and then we started getting in all these museums and doing this ambient stuff that was about reflection and meditation and we have made some books that um
1: Okay, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. That's that's a big gloss over right there. Like, so <laughs> how did that come about? How did doing the shows in in or what were the key shows? And um, did you do the same thing more than no, once? No, no. Like, was well, what was every time it
0: changed. Thing? So um, we did this. Basically, we had done the um, the thing that got in that big. They did the first ever electronic music exhibition at the Sachi Gallery and it was just a bunch of happen chance stuff where a bunch of stuff kept happening and then we were since we were in that exhibition we got asked to do something at another museum and then we were asked to do this thing with a foundation so
1: that what was sorry what what was the the thing at, this, at the Sarch Gallery what did you guys do there so that
0: was so so the the album the first album on RNS was also an art installation with these 6 6 meter boxes not a uh, 2 meter two by two meter light boxes that encompass that like, so it's a large screen and then, you know, uh, six light boxes that, that you set in the middle of with surround sound. And you watch this 40 minute film that we made about Saturn that goes with the album and about like all this fucked up stuff that happens in the world and consumerism and all this insane stuff. And then that was picked up by some kind of art, like art forum and these big art magazines as this kind of triumph, and then from that, a few different museums around the world: the Detroit um, Detroit Museum of Modern Art, and then uh, the Foundation Byler, who became a big champion of us. It's one of the biggest art museums in Europe, and then um, some other stuff. Yeah, we just and then the Met in in New York, and all these people started picking up on our stuff. Like we don't really play at raves; we only play at museums. And then we started doing this ambient <laughs> stuff <laughs> and like all the, like, so stuff started really going well in like the arts community, I guess. And uh, then we did this recently did a, um, a, a collaboration with Olaf Elson, you know, really famous mm-hmm. uh, artist where he had taken over uh, the foundation by it's this museum in Basel. And it was about climate and he flooded the whole museum. And then they had this thing with this UV light. So then we, um, had done this thing where we recorded all these sounds inside the installation and then repurposed those sounds and created this like ambient soundscape. And then we then performed that for Arte inside of the uh, installation at the museum. And yeah, I don't know. It's kind of funny. We do all this crazy stuff that like, you know, no one, you know, the, you know, RAs and all this stuff don't
1: outside of the uh, right. You say exactly. <laughs> don't really talk about
0: yeah. you know because it's not the flavor of the week, but it is really progressive, <laughs> um, and like you know museums like it, so that's cool. But yeah, we're just kind of making art for art's sake. Phil is obviously a professor at Purchase, and um, I didn't know that. Is yeah. he, what does he What does he teach? He he teaches music production at Purchase. He teaches a masters program right. there, and he does another most master's program in um, New York. And it's kind of just Phil and is like weirdo geek art project trying to expose to the world that Saturn is controlling everything, much like the film, they live <laughs> and we live amongst aliens. You know, you know we're trying to like expose I the mean, big I'll, things. I'll, you know? I'll
1: accept that. I'll accept that. That's what I, I believe.
0: <laughs> I believe we live in a semi-holographic universe between they live in the matrix and that much of our uh, opinions or things that... The problems that we're facing in the world are because an alien civilization has infiltrated society, and you know, is kind of out for the ill will of humanity. You know. Okay, that's- let me
1: <laughs> ask for clarification on this point. It's
0: ten hats, <laughs> um, you know? is this
1: is, is that distinct from the simulation theory, the computer simulation theory?
0: Well, so, well, I, I believe I think we're in a middle point between simulation theory and kind of organic matter. You know, and even okay. if we are in a true simulation, a total simulation, I think that, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard because like there's so many coincidence and other things in life that lead you to this point of your existence that you're like, maybe it is a total simulation. I mean, but then other points that you're like, I am also living here and there are consequences to my actions in the f- physical world. And then it kind of like, if you've seen the Carpenter film, They Live, it's kind of like a mix of simulation and organic matter, where like, maybe there is like some type of frequencies. And that was our thing with Los Angeles and the frequency level And we we basically pointed out that all these different frequencies have a different influence on human emotion that was proved kind of through science and then also color and light through Kandinsky and all this other stuff of human manipulation through different frequency and by suppressing frequency then or by let's say you know there's the whole thing that like they change the scale of music to kind of suppress humanity and then like also by a certain frequencies well, being, hang,
1: hang on a second sec. <laughs> let me ask for clarification on that <laughs> who changed the frequency of music to suppress humanity
0: no i well, we, I we personally before. don't but there there is this whole kind of theory that the scale of music was changed slightly to a different harmonic to then change kind of how the human.
1: Okay. I haven't heard that before.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not really so tin hattie. It's like, it's a, it's a fact it happened right after uh classical music. So I think it's even in, in, David Burns, how music works that they changed the harmonic of how, how music works. Okay. It's a great. Great book. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, and also if you listen to kind of pop and some of the harmonics and if, and all if you just, it's just so fucked up, right? How like, so much of society and so much of the desensit- desensitization of people is kind of linked through music and, and media and film, you know, like so much. So like it's it, like I always used to put this up as a kind of thing, like this track. I'm There was this track some years ago, I'm in Love with the Coco, right? Which was a track that literally like was the recipe of to make crack. <laughs> that was played in high frequency <laughs> right. in, in urban areas. Right. And it's like, who makes those choices? You know what I'm saying? To, is that, is that true? Yeah, it's really true. That's really? 100%, 100% true. That so okay. who makes these, who makes these choices to promote this music that like, that's really bad detrimental to society. You know what I'm saying? And then if you start getting, and then we started, we started playing with that conspiracy, right? not that we totally believe that there's like this map, but like we're like, okay, if there's, there's someone behind or like basically cause the whole Saturn theory is Saturn feeds off of negative energy. Right. And if people are in a constant right. emitting a constant energy of fear, then Saturn, this kind of, kind of son of souls, you know, like then it, it gets more energy, more power, you know? And if you see, Kind of like a, the devil's greatest trick is the 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 more we admit this kind of fear complex, the more we're afraid, the more sexualized and everything we are, the more we kind of start to put out this weird frequency, and someone is to benefit from that. You know, someone is to benefit from the stopping of love. You know, if you even look at black music, you know, after the the day disco died, the Kmita Park incident. At some point, black music up until the eighties was largely positive, right? Then you had the Kaminsky Park incident where they got rid of, you know, disco, but it was actually getting rid of black music. After that, all the music on the radio switched to rock. And then black music wasn't really repopularized on the radio till gangster rap and things that became quite negative, you know? And there's this thing in the black community. They're not afraid of our hate, they're afraid of our love. Right. And the, the love that we can bring and uplift society. And if you look at things in terms of love, the things that are about love, you know, are, are largely suppressed in the you know mass media of the world, you know, no matter who makes it, you know, and things that are about hate, that are about the negative ills of our society. With Los of Saturn, we came up with this cube and eat the cube represents six different ill things, ill wills of society that either you can combat these things and enlighten society or you can um, can use them to suppress society as a whole. And you know, that's a kind of a, a quick rant of all this shit that the also the Saturn was kind of about and that Phil and I <laughs> were trying to okay. know, teach the people, preach <laughs> the people. <laughs> you know. Right, so, so um, when's the new album out? The new, so the new album, we've just finished the uh, comic. I'll send that over to you so you can check it out. Um, the people can't, uh, can't watch it here, um, but it's coming early next year, and it's really cool. We um, we linked with some really cool people, this group Proto Martyr and some other people, and it's it's super far. I'll send you I'll send you some of the stuff, some IDM stuff, some drum and bass, like it's really really out there. But it's kind of like a funny thing where like you know, as you understand as a musician, if you make music a bit too out there, it's kind of like where do you put it <laughs> type of situation. Right, <laughs> you know, it's like so, but we're just kind of like trying to get the word out. You know, the the you know, the dark moon of Saturn's trying to control you. So,
1: uh, okay, <laughs> I'll bear that in mind going forward It's not something I'd uh, considered before, but yeah, maybe there's something in that. Yeah. So, okay, this has been an awesome, man. I've got one more question. Okay, uh, in fact, there's two. Th- no, there's there's two things I want to ask you about actually. First of all, Doctor Cornell West, tell me about your relationship with him.
0: Uh, so Cornell, Dr. West, actually, it's really great when I was doing this uh, beat port. so Dr. West is really into uh, electronic music, and he's also into s- some of these things I was kind of saying, but you know, the calamity of 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 and the oppression that you know kind of uh, black people have faced have, as a result, created some of the most incredible music of our time. And uh, when I was doing the Black History Month thing, for Beatport and going through some different people to talk to, like Paul Johnson. I had actually had Paul Johnson's last interview before he passed away. Uh, And, you know, um, Tony Humphreys and uh, Ron Trent and all these other, K. Lexi, all these great artists from, you know, uh, the past to really show the positive history and the, um, let's say, the uh, the, uh, point that we are coming from in a very positive light, I guess. Uh, and Dr. West yep. is just someone from my grandfather to everyone has been a huge, uh, I guess, inspiration amongst the black community in positivity, as well as being someone who ha- deeply supports music and, it, and it is a supporter of house music. And so uh, from that, uh, we were able to start that relationship. He has a, a label called Purple Music Sound. I've done some A&Ring for and help them kind of uh, find their footsteps in, in music uh, or the music as a whole. There's this great artist, Brandon Lucas, who is actually the um, kind of uh, the main A&R with Dr. West, who they work together to kind of deliver perfect mu- Purple Music Sound. And Dr. West just wants to be an inspiration for uh, people in the black community also to listen to house music and to get that positive message of positivity and, uh, and music out there, you know, and, and lift people instead of because, again, Dr. West is also under the belief that so much of uh, black music had been hijacked and used as a form of suppression and rap music and other and even R&B and all these other things. The music that they choose to popularize from our culture isn't the music that I think any of us truly believe we are. So it's just like this kind of funny thing. Even it's a big conversation right now in, in in general pop that you know a lot of the musicians who make music that's actually quite negative only make that music because they're forced to you know, and it doesn't reflect the right. Messages. The market rewards it, right? The market yeah. rewards it, and and they, they won't be signed even when I mean, look at Erica Badu. She's making incredible music, but she can't have a hasn't had a, a album out on a major label in what 15, 20 years, but she keeps releasing music that's really widely acclaimed, you know, but it's not played on the radio. So it's, there's choices amongst how and what music is played. I mean, bands like the Rolling Stones, even, they couldn't be a band today because their first albums flop. You know what I'm saying? There's this like, it's funny once you get into much wider music, how uh, the music that we promote compared to the music that's out there that could be promoted and how that music affects society and the music that they choose to promote often has a negative effect on society as a whole, you know? And that's kind of a funny place to kind of look at things.
1: Yeah, I, I, t- I totally, totally see that. And like, in particular, yeah, black black music, right? Because you're absolutely right that so, since the sort of late 80s, like it's it's definitely been a kind of... There's a choice.
0: I did, I did actually some years ago a, 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 a keynote talk. I was uh, the, uh, the interviewer with uh, Chuck D., and Chuck D went for, for IMS in LA, actually. And Chuck D went deep on it. And he's like, he's like, I'll tell you exactly how it happened because I was there. And he's like, you know, they, they really made a choice to silence certain artists and to do certain things, you know. And that's that's the music industry and that's how things work, you know. But it's just, it's just funny. Yeah, when,
1: sorry, let me ask you about that. When you say they... Like, is it a kind of general industry forces? Yeah, just general. Were, this is general is music more industry. Specific it's not like
0: that? I'm not like Kanye over here being like they, the Jews. No, it's not like that at all. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's that's insane. No, sure. And again, my wife is Jewish. Sure, you mean by broad? Like broad, <laughs> I'm, broad taking, force. I'm taking like oh, yeah, broad. I
1: wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. no, but I'm saying broad strokes. I'm saying the music industry, you know, which is mostly lawyers and like not people who are actually. Anyway, involved in music, you know that was like really, that, and that's what Chuck D was also saying. You know, he's like, you know, before the music industry, up until the '80s, were mostly music enthusiasts. You know, and that's why they spent all these, and then they spent all the these big holly, not the big Hollywood, but these big budgets on, you know, kind of creating bands and you know giving them all this money to make music for music's sake. And then at some point, they created a formula that was about money. You know what I'm saying? And it, unless you fit within that formula that produces these these kind of not rewards but it's hefty sums of money for these record companies then you couldn't really get a record contract no matter what type of music you made you know what i'm saying or who you were black white puerto rican asian whoever where the fuck you know like do you fit in the algorithm are you going to make us money or are you making art and then you know you have a flop and then you're out you know so that was like that's the day it's just lawyers really <laughs> yeah a
1: very a very similar thing happened in in Hollywood didn't it after yeah. the kind of the kind of golden era of like the auto director in the 1970s exactly. and all the rest of it. and then suddenly suddenly in the 80s money took over money took over we're and, you know, now left with Marvel comic movies Exactly, much else, exactly right? because the big they make
0: like, they make cash man <laughs> they make a lot of money every time you know and that's that's the thing and you can't you can't I mean we can fault capitalism for those things you can't really fault the, the record industry so much. And that's what's so incredible about us being in the independent music industry and, you know, platforms like Bandcamp and all these different things allowing so many artists to make their own way and promote their music in other ways, you know. But in a mass culture way, now, and so many of people from our culture being so progressive and being so open-minded to so much music and ideas in terms of both life, politics, sexuality, everything, We live in this mini utopia, but that's not society as a whole, you know, and all we can do within our kind of place within this music and society and our culture is to be able to try to expand and promote ideas that are outside of those boxes, you know what I'm saying? So to inspire people to be their true selves and kind of listen and be the people that they want to be and find things that interest them, you know? That's, what I think, you and I do. This podcast is doing by spreading, like, really, you know, saying everything that I probably... My manager's going to kill me for saying, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm having a great time. This is this is the most fun I've had with the interview for a long time. So <laughs> thank you for the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, thanks for your time, man. I've just got one more question, which is which is a classic question, and it is... Is DJing an art form in your opinion?
0: I think it can be. I think DJing can really easily be an art form and, and I think how you and I DJ and a lot of our peers DJ is an art form. I think there's a difference between uh being a a DJ and an entertainer, right? And I think right, right. being and I think the idea is underground and overground that's totally mixed now. That doesn't really there's no underground anymore. But I think there is a difference between artist and entertainer, you know? And I think some people in our community are artists, and I think some people are entertainers, you know? And being able to pick between the two is, I think, the choice of the audience. And in, and the great words of, of Prince, you get the audience you deserve.
1: <laughs> right? Right. So... Right.
0: <laughs> so I think people who are going to music events for art and for that experience tend to generate more towards DJs who do who do express DJing as an art form or as a term uh, as a physical embodiment of, of of their kind of view of how how to collage music together into creating a singular journey and make something beautiful. You know, there's many DJs who. Time, of being able to do that in in a way that astounds the mind there's other DJs you know says what it is on the kin you go to the show it's a concert you see the thing you get the Instagram video and that's good and everyone has a good time on both sides you know and neither is wrong and that's something I've kind of come to realize that you know there's space for everybody and you know just like in real arts there's a much there's a big difference between Damien Hurst and Ai Weiwei, Wei, you know <laughs> like, what, what, it depends on it. You know, it depends on what you're doing, or like, you know, between pop art or consumer art to you know really artists who are you know trying to change the human condition. You know, but that they're, they're all art, and people people like it all. You know, so yeah. I mean, we like you know apples. Some people like fucking bananas. Who knows? You know, it's like it's. It, but you know, neither is wrong, and that's that's what we're we're figuring it out now. You know, like why? Who am I to tell you? You know that fucking cake tastes like shit. It tastes like shit. It does taste like shit. But you know, that's your cake. You enjoy that cake. You know, I got my own. I prefer pie personally. I don't like frosting. You know, like so right. But yeah, that's that's my my view on it, you know. Yeah. Well, listen, man, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for doing it. I Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul. I hope you had a good time. I hope uh, I hope I don't get cancelled. So until nah, next you time,
1: won't get, you, you won't get cancelled. <laughs> it's
0: okay. It's okay. All right, we'll see you later, Paul. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll see you. I'll see you around.
1: Yeah, that was Seth Choxler. And um, what an enjoyable conversation. We went pretty deep on some varying areas there, keeping on music generally. But I mean, it was great to hear the stories about Detroit. I'm looking forward to getting one of the first waivers on at some stage. Not sure who I would have as my ideal choice for that. I mean, to be honest, any of them would be great, let's be honest, or any of the second waivers too to be frank but yeah just great to hear the stories of him growing up in the city and winning the RA poll as well that was an ambition of mine for a very short period of time until it became clear that there was no way it was ever going to happen but uh, (laughs) the RA poll man that was a huge thing for a while I'm kind of glad they stopped it though it was a little bit oppressive after a while with the uh, soliciting for votes which went on every year Anyway, we've talked about that before on the show. So, if you're not already, then support the show on Patreon, Patreon patreon.com slash There's two tiers there. Regular tier, which gets you the bonus podcasts, of which there are quite a few. And then musicality tier, which gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. And there's going to be more stuff we add to that tier soon too, I think. So... Yeah, it's all pretty reasonable. And if you're enjoying what we're doing here, then we would be very, very grateful to have your support. If you can't do that, or if you don't want to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit that five-star button. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord, if you've got anything to say at all. Right, I'm out of here. This has been a long podcast to make but it's finally done and it's finally out. So whew, I'm done. I'll be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of a Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Let's cool, wow.